When Tabisa was a child in South Africa in the 1960s under the apartheid regime, she saw her mother harassed and arrested by the police. Seeing her mother cuffed and led away left Tabisa shocked, unbelieving, and numb. It was only as she grew older that she came to understand what happened that day. Her mother was not a criminal, but rather an anti-apartheid activist, working for change for her people. As a young person, Tabisa became increasingly angry and outraged at the injustices she and other Black people faced in South Africa. These acts of police harassment and arrest brought a lot of resentment. When I witnessed with frustration atrocities done to other people, it used to hurt and infuriate me, leaving me feeling hopeless or powerless. Those actions influenced my thoughts that when I grow up, I have to vindicate myself and my people. And this is how I ended up being a limp of the struggle as an activist. Tabisa followed in her mother's footsteps, not only as an activist, but also eventually as a Latter-day Saint. Since the end of the apartheid regime, she has worked to let go of her anger and develop loving relationships with white people, many of them church members she serves with. I'm Caroline Klein, and you're listening to This Global Latter-day Life. Several oral histories in Claremont Graduate University's oral history collections feature Latter-day Saints navigating complicated issues of race. Moreover, they showcase the hard-won wisdom some Latter-day Saints of color have acquired as they reconcile their faith in the gospel with the realities of imperfect church members. Today we'll be focusing on the topic of race, talking about Tabisa's story of navigating the dangerous and difficult world of apartheid-era South Africa. Kalani Tonga will be joining me to discuss the themes and issues raised in this oral history. In order to maintain some measure of privacy for Tabisa, we are not using her real name. Our thanks to Dimakatso Mazabuko for reading Tabisa's words. Welcome, Kalani. I'm so pleased that you're able to join us today to talk about this oral history. Before we begin, can you tell us a little about yourself and why this topic of race and Mormonism is important to you? Of course. Thank you so much for having me. So I think why it's important to me is just because coming from a biracial background, I feel like I have a foot in multiple worlds, particularly when it comes to the church. I have a perspective that is less unique now than it used to be, but still kind of different than a lot of other people's experience because I am biracial. And so I do have, you know, my mom's family is Swedish. My dad's family is Tongan, which is a Pacific Islander. And, and so like, you know, I grew up, I remember seeing somebody at church shake my dad's hand and say, you know, we're so glad that your people have the priesthood now at which didn't even apply to my dad, (laughs) you know, but just having that as an experience in my life and remembering that it made it so that I always had an interest in the way that the church has handled race issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been very personal for you. Absolutely. I also I mean, I, I too think that this is such an important issue. Just, you know, looking at the history of things, you know, tensions and complicated questions about race, of course, have 
circulated among church members for generation. Obviously, there was that the priesthood and temple ban lifted in 1978 that has been such a trial for many people of color. But even with the lifting of the ban, people of color, you know, as you indicate, still need to navigate complicated issues of race, whether those are issues of structural power where whiteness is privileged or traces in Latter-day Saint scripture, teachings and doctrine that raise some difficult questions about race. So this is such a crucial topic, and I am glad we're approaching it today, and I am so glad to have you here to help to talk about this. Tabisa was born in Johannesburg in the 1950s. She spent her youngest years in a house with only two rooms and no plumbing for the family of seven. But these were often happy years. We slept like pack sardines, with most of my siblings sharing the double bed with my mom and others in the baby's cot situated in the room that tripled for a kitchen, dining room, and a sitting room. Meals together in that tiny room were the best moments of my life. We would laugh, play games, and pray together. There was, however, one major sadness that haunted her childhood. Her father was killed by the apartheid government, a political elimination, as she recounted, when she was two years old. So her mother was a hugely important and beloved figure in her life, passing on her Christian faith and her thirst for education and liberation. Tabisa was especially pained when she saw her mother mistreated or ridiculed. I so much wanted to fight her battles, to slap their mouths, to get them to shut up. Very calmly, she always counseled that sometimes such incidents would occur in our lives, that they were a necessary process to strengthen us and that in time, we grow past them. Her calm attitude towards challenges helped me a lot in handling personal challenges today. I have learned that it is not every comment made about me that merits a reaction or response. Tabisa married when she was quite young to a much older man. It was a good marriage in the beginning, but eventually she chafed at his possessiveness and desire for her to stay dependent on him. After having two children, she left the marriage and became involved in the beauty industry, eventually working for Revlon and as an editor for a beauty magazine. This was a difficult road during the apartheid era, however. There were no institutions to teach Africans journalism at the time. There were no institutions to accommodate one to become a beautician. There were no institutions to accommodate you to own your own travel agency. I realized how many doors were closed to us as Africans. Tabisa did important work in the world of cosmetology and journalism as she emphasized the dangers of using skin lighteners and advocated for safer products for Africans. But these were hard times. Particularly difficult was living under the abuses of the apartheid government. Tabisa was involved in the anti-apartheid movement, engaging in some high-risk activities, and sometimes, just in the course of her daily life, Tabisa had to directly confront oppressive and brutal behavior of white people. Such was the case one day, when she was rushing to get her two young boys to school. Her car was suddenly overtaken and blocked by private police officers, employees of a private security company. One of the police, reeking of strong alcohol fumes, grabbed my children out of the car like little criminals, whilst his colleague tried to do likewise with me too but I wouldn't let him. I willed myself out of being manhandled. 
the police that was reeking of alcohol accused me of driving fast. I admitted I was, and I explained, I'm driving fast because I'm taking my children to school, and we are almost late. And I apologized. The school was just a stone's throw away from where we were. While his colleague was interrogating me, the other police was interrogating my children. And from the corner of my eye, I saw him plug one of my children against the car and started searching him like a hardcore criminal. A nine-year-old, you know, a nine-year-old. I fumed inside me. Things escalated when the man began to suspect that Tabisa's car was not her own. It wasn't. She was working for Revlon at the time and explained it was a company car, but he was not listening to reason. He grabbed both my kids by their scarves. That was the last throw. When I saw their frightened faces and teardrops swelling in their innocent eyes, I saw red. Police or no police, I'd had it. I grabbed him by his collar and I gave it to him first with my head. I beat him up before his colleagues separated us. With crowds gathering around to watch the altercation, the officers decided to retreat. But experiences like this leave scars. After such a personal experience, you painfully and angrily question yourself how many more innocent people are not victims of similar instances, if not worse. You begin to harbor anger and wait for an opportunity, wanting to settle the score and avenge your hurting feeling. Tabisa experienced a change of heart, however, when she accompanied her mother on a trip to Utah. Her mother had converted to the church in the early 1980s and had become an important leader in not only her South African church community, but the greater community at large, as she advocated for peace and interracial friendships. She had been invited to BYU to receive an award for her peace work. This trip was life-changing for Tabisa, now in her 40s, who was engaged to be married and thinking about her future. As she walked in Salt Lake City, saw old couples walking around and holding hands, and heard the bells chiming out, Come, come, ye saints. She found herself overwhelmed with new thoughts and feelings. This, it felt that this is what I've been looking for. I didn't need to have the hate when there is so much beauty, love, and peace in the world. It made me feel and realize that we are all human. Even those that hurt us, they also do feel pain. Then I asked myself, do I still want to retaliate the way I initially felt? Do I want to avenge my feelings the way that I have always wanted to? And I found that it was not necessary. Life was just too beautiful and precious to be wasted with negative energy. Though often there would be the feeling that I didn't know why it should not be necessary to avenge my anger feelings. And with time, I came to realize that I could still address that pain effectively by doing something good that was inclusive of color. My circle of European friends became firmer, more sincere, lovable, and unifying. Indeed, I felt the binding spirit of being one as our Heavenly Father's children. Tabisa's healing had begun. Upon her conversion, her priorities shifted to reconciliation, unity, and inclusive community as she cultivated a new attitude toward white people. Europeans are people and human, just like my African folks. The errors of a handful do not merit a blanket opinion about them. Personally, I engage with people, not color, 
no creed or gender. While Tabisa still encounters racism from some white South Africans, she sees these interactions as indicative of individuals' moral failings and not indicative of whites as a whole. She is still cognizant of structural racism and praises activists who stand for the rights of Black people in her community. But she has also worked hard to develop a mind frame that allows her to see white people as individuals. The church has given her opportunities to cultivate interracial friendships. When her husband died suddenly at home only a few years into their marriage, and while she was still holding the hand of her dead husband, one of the first people she called was a white Latter-day Saint friend. This friend came over at once and helped Tabisa find a funeral home. That period of time, when her husband died, was a difficult one for Tabisa. In the space of just a few short years, she lost her husband, her mother, and her son, who was killed by gun violence. But she has found a way to cope with the pain. Oh, my life has just been too much. I've learned that when you've got pain, don't grieve for your pain in isolation. Extend yourself to be of service to other people. And Heavenly Father has a way of healing you through that. And it's worked so much for me. Also healing for Tabisa is her determination to forgive the white people who work to maintain systems of oppression in her country. She names that as the single greatest challenge she has overcome. You know, politically, for me to be able to forgive and be able to sit at a table with those that would have best preferred to have seen me gone is great for me. It's big, maybe the biggest thing I have overcome. And to honestly not feel a tinge of revenge. I confess, I disagree about topical issues, but it should not be done out of being vindictive or to prove a point, but just to share with the hope and the view that we can both differ, respect each other and grow from that. So Kalani, I loved this story of a woman finding peace in her life amid a context of real struggle and racial injustice. The abuses of the apartheid government, of course, are well known. And it's interesting to think about Tabisa and her mother, who were activists for black rights, choosing to join a church that does have uh, such a complex history with regards to race. So that, that really jumped out to me in her oral history. What jumped out at you um, regarding Tabisa's story? Is there anything you would like to talk about? I think it's a hard thing to reconcile people who have been oppressive in general, a people who have been oppressive to your people and being able to see the commonalities that you have with each other in spite of some of the experiences that you've had. And I really appreciated that she was able to, with her mom being an, you know, an activist and seeing some of the hardest things, you know, just dealing with the police and dealing with being, you know, physically handled by people. And then, yeah, to kind of find a way to reconcile that knowledge with the kindness of others within a church setting, I think is what struck me. It's really hard to see people individually if you have been mistreated by a group. And so I appreciated that she was able to open her heart in that way. Yeah, I found that very moving as well. And that the church became a site where she could 
do that. She could develop these relationships across lines of difference. And I, I mean, I loved that story where right after her husband died, like one of the very first people she called, or maybe the first person she called was her white friend in the ward to help her figure out who to call, you know, in terms of a funeral home. And so, yeah. And so I did love that the church was this place where despite these heavy, difficult, historical (laughs) oppressions going on, she was able to develop these relationships. And she was able to find peace in the church, you know, and it it sounded according to her oral history that it was really kind of Deciding to devote herself to the church and belong to this church really helps her to cultivate a sense of peace in her life. And I wanted to ask you, Kalani, if maybe at certain time periods in your life, even given the complications, you know, because like we mentioned, uh, race is a very complicated subject when we think historically about Mormonism, has the church helped you to forgive and find peace in your life? How has the church centered you in difficult times and what has it offered you? You know, I think one of the interesting parallels between this story and my own is that my husband passed away in January and I have a group of close friends that, um, that I, I formed friendships with them online (laughs) and it was through writing for a blog called Feminist Mormon Housewives. And, you know, the blog, we don't really write anymore, but I still have these very close friendships with these women. And, you know, when Finau died, the first person that I called was my mom. And the second person that I called was one of those women um, to let them know, to let my community know what had happened and because I knew that they would be a support system for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's so interesting, you know, that particular part of the story is interesting to me as well, because, you know, coming from a community that typically has fewer resources, right. That was my first inclination as well is to reach out to, women that I knew would be there for me and be able to help me with things that I probably wouldn't have access to or wouldn't even know how to go about getting access to. So yeah, I think that's something that really helped me personally. I also think that, you know, I <laughs> I have a lot of, I think, I'm going to just say unresolved trauma <laughs> around some of the church's teachings with regard to race, it's really hard to grow up as a brown kid with a white mom whose philosophy is that she doesn't see color, you know? Mm -hmm. And we actually just had a talk about this the other day where she was like, I just don't see. And I was like, you know, I appreciate that you can be that way. But also what you're telling me as an individual is that something that is important to me doesn't matter to you enough to see it, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was a hard conversation to have because I don't feel like, you know, my mom is my biggest supporter. When my husband died, she dropped everything and moved to Utah for seven weeks and stayed with me and my kids and took care of me. And she loves me fiercely. But this is a 
kind of a blind spot that we we don't really see eye to eye on. And I do think that it's in part because of the church, you know. But that said, I think that there are there's a lot of comfort in knowing that the people within the church are there and will help. Will help with open arms. And I have found peace with that particular aspect in lots of parts of my life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And well, first, let me say how sorry I am to hear about your husband's passing. That is that is tragic. And I know you still have little kids. I mean, this is this is such a hard thing. And secondly, I do love the fact that you brought up the power of Mormon community uh, when when tragedies strike. I'm so glad you had that community, that Mormon community to help you when Finau died and and your mom, you know, and, and just all these people that rallied around you. So that is that is a wonderful aspect of, of Mormon community, even amidst all these other complications. And in fact, what you just said about your mom, that difficult conversation you had with your mom really leads into my next question, which was that one thing that really struck me with Tabisa's story is the way she talks about not viewing people through the prism of race. She tries to view them as individuals and not as white or black. And I think this actually really makes sense, given that she is trying to heal from this context of violent racial oppression, and she's trying to forgive, she's trying to bridge distances, she's trying to find commonalities. And of course, this is language that national heroes like Nelson Mandela used in South Africa. And what I found in reading about 30 oral histories that were gathered in, in South Africa with black Mormon women was like, this is a very common attitude when asked about the white general leadership of the church. These women often said things along the lines of, it doesn't matter what color they are, if the message is good, or I don't pay attention to color. And of course, I want to say that a huge caveat here is that these women were being interviewed by two white women from America. So that could have <laughs> definitely contributed to a desire to downplay the issue of race. But it was nevertheless kind of striking to me that there was a clear desire to downplay the issue of race. And and I thought that was really striking because as you just mentioned, Kalani, you know, we come, uh, you and I, you know, come from a context nowadays where we tend to acknowledge that race is really important and that if you experience the U.S. or South Africa as a person of color, you're going to have a kind of insight and a kind of experience that a white person just doesn't have. And so I, I was thinking that I, what I see here are, are two different discourses. One is a discourse that really downplays the issue of race. We might maybe we'll kind of call it more on the colorblind side of things. And one is more of a race conscious discourse. And so in thinking about these discourses in an LDS context, I wanted to get your take on this, Kalani, and you might have just sort of mentioned this a little bit before, but how do you think race should be talked about within a Mormon context in America? You know, is there, do you find kind of utility to this colorblind discourse in our church today? Or do you think there needs to be a balance between the two discourses? How do you, how do you think about these two discourses? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the older I get, the more I realize that there are some things that are right and wrong, but there's a lot more in the world that is right for me and wrong for me, you know? 
And I feel that way also towards some of the, you know, we all are the hero of our own story, right? But just because you're the hero of your own story doesn't mean that you can't be the villain in somebody else's, you know? And it's all a matter of perspective. And so I think people do what works for them and people believe what works for them. And I don't want to be super controversial or anything, but I think if you grow up in a colonized area, you kind of have to tend towards that colorblindness attitude to get along. You can't like a survival strategy. Yeah, it's a it's a survival technique. And again, I don't want to generalize that because I think everybody does what works for them and everybody believes what works for them. But I think in certain systems, certain things work better than others. In the United States, we're kind of breaking out of some of those colonial mindsets in a way that allows us to embrace differences in a way that we haven't done previously. Colorblindness, I think, is... I really don't want to say coping mechanism. That doesn't feel like that's the right term. But I think that it's something that works within that system. And so that is the mindset that a lot of people have. And I think if it works for them, then that's what's good for them, you know, and that mindset doesn't work for me. And so I don't, you know, just like I said, like when I talk to my mom or when I talk to other people about how I feel about it, that's not something that works for me. And so I don't, I don't embrace that, but I don't, I don't want to invalidate the people that that does work for. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fair. Thank you so much for your thoughts on that, Kalani. And before we close this one down, Kalani, is there any last thoughts or comments you'd like to add about Tabisa's story? I mean, I think I'd really just like to, again, reiterate that, especially when we talk about race, people of color are not a monolith. And so every story is valid in its own context. And I think it's really important that we look at each of the stories through the lens of the person who is experiencing it and honor that experience for what it is. Mm. Those are wise words, Kalani. And this is actually the reason why I'm I'm so happy that you are the guest today, because I knew you would bring that spirit of generosity and compassion and willingness to see the world or try to see the world through other people's eyes. So thank you for uh, your insight on this oral history. And I am looking forward to speaking to you in our next episode. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. One final word of thanks to Shiloh Logan for the many hours he put into editing this episode. A Claremont Graduate University Mormon Studies podcast. Hi, this is Caroline Klein, host of This Global Latter-day Life. If you're enjoying the kind of stories you're hearing from Latter-day Saint women around the world on this show, you'll also enjoy my new book. It's called Mormon Women at the Crossroads, and it's filled with compelling stories like the ones you've been hearing on This Global Latter-day Life. 
order a copy at the University of Illinois Press website, on Amazon.com, or from your favorite local book retailer, Mormon Women at the Crossroads by Caroline Klein. This Global Latter-day Life is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode, check out Fireside with Blair Hodges. He is a terrific interviewer, his podcast is beautifully produced, and he features some of the most interesting thinkers out there. I'm going to take a risk in this ad by saying the word holiness right here in the very first sentence. That's risky because the word can trigger all kinds of positive or negative feelings. I mean, sometimes I'm afraid to call something holy because it makes things feel sort of unrelatable or or like disconnected from everyday life. And really, I mean, that's too bad because the word's actually related to wholeness and helpfulness, which suggests that maybe we can learn to find holiness in places we never really thought to look before. I'm talking about holiness like a fire. It can warm, but it can also burn. You might get smoke in your eyes, but the flickering flames are also really beautiful. If this kind of holiness sounds appealing, you should check out Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's a podcast featuring writers, artists, and activists who can help expand your concept of holiness to include the gritty, earthy stuff of everyday life. Come fan the flames of your curiosity at Fireside with Blair Hodges, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Available at firesidepod.org and wherever you get your podcasts.